Hello out there on the internet, I am Matthew Galt and this is Cyber. And we've all seen the videos, those viral town hall meetings where the community gathers to give its feedback to city managers on this or that subject, and too often, a crank with a microphone dominates the entire panel, yelling at local political operators about something bizarre and hyper-specific. Sometimes, they get abusive. There's yelling, tears, grandstanding, and usually nothing changes or gets done. But that's the height of democracy, right? This is our government in action. This is the people expressing their will directly to their government. That's America, baby. Well, what if I told you it's also a pretty new development? What if I told you also usually gets in the way of anything changing or anything getting done and makes problems worse? What if I told you there's a better way? Well, today to tell us the story and the history of community feedback and why it's time to change is Motherboard's senior writer, Aaron Gordon. It is the subject of his new piece on the site. Thank you for your feedback, Aaron. Thank you so much for coming onto the show once again and uh, walking us through a complicated bit of Americana. As always, it is a pleasure to come on here and rant about how we can't do anything. How America is broken systemically. That is that yeah. is becoming the show increasingly. I wish I wish I could I wish I could make that like my official beat title, you know, motherboard senior writer covering how America is fundamentally broken and can't do anything. Well, tell me about for people who don't know, I mean, I think we, a bunch of us have seen the videos, some of them parodies, a bunch of us have watched Parks and Recreation, which I didn't realize after reading your story is kind of a documentary. Um, <laughs> what is community feedback? Yeah, so basically writing this story, I had to figure out how to summarize this process that I've come across in so many different uh ways during my actual reporting and like you can find community feedback at city council hearings at public transit agent at public transit meetings at zoning commission meetings at you know meetings about environmental reviews for large transit projects like it pops up in all different um aspects of american life and the purpose of it in each different in each setting varies slightly whether it's like legally required or just done because local politicians thinks it's the right thing to do also varies um depending on the setting but fundamentally any time what the what the piece is basically about is any time when government at some level holds a public hearing to receive feedback from ordinary citizens on a project or policy proposal that is highly technical and specific and has been designed by experts in a field with advanced degrees, but the citizens have been empowered to affect that process with their feedback. And that's fundamentally the kind of community input that the story is interested in. And often it kind of ends up looking like um, people standing in front of their elected officials yelling at them at a podium. Right. Yeah, that's right. And like one of the you know, this has been parodied and memed and just generally like made fun of in popular culture for for decades now. Like this isn't a new idea that like this is a ridiculous thing. And it often brings out the cranks, you know, who like show up and say absurd or terrible or racist or whatever things. Um and and there's a structural reason why this is. This isn't like just a coincidence or it's not just or it's not that like 
the U.S. has more cranks than other countries, although for all I know, that may be true. Um, but, you know, it's like there's a structural reason with the way these meetings are held that incentivizes the presence of people who give unproductive, unhelpful and often vitriolic uh, you know, feedback essentially that's valueless versus like people who maybe would actually have something to add that is worth the consideration of the officials in charge, but they're just not at the meeting. They're not weighing in because, you know, it's at six o'clock on a weekday. They have something better to do. They have a job to go to. They have, they have kids to take care of. Um, they're busy and like they don't really see it as they're as worth their time to show up or they don't even know it, it's happening in a lot of cases too. Whereas like older, more privileged, often, uh, often white and often male, uh, people. And like, these are not like stereo- these, these are stereotypes that are backed by research that shows that like disproportionately, these are the people who show up to these meetings. They show up because they're disproportionately homeowners. So they're legally notified of these kinds of changes. Whereas renters or people who, uh, you know, like uh, aren't the owners of the property um, won't be legally notified. You know, there'll be people who have lived in the community for a very long time. And so they'll feel like they have some kind of expertise that others don't, whether deserved or not. Um, they'll often feel like they have professional expertise that is relevant, even when it isn't like they'll like you'll often come across people who are like, I'm a lawyer and therefore I know things about like zoning regulation. It's like, Okay, fine. Or, you know, I'm an architect and therefore my opinion is particularly important about like whether this housing development gets built. And it's like, is it, you know, and stuff like stuff like that. So there are all these like um, just like deeply structural reasons for why like we have these stereotypes that are largely accurate about who shows up to these meetings and why they act a certain way. It didn't used to be this way, to be clear. Right. Um there used to be developing things in America, building stuff in this country used to be much more of a, and also, you know what, just as a tangent, because someone, because someone reached out, we've been a very America specific show lately. Um, I saw your DM and I promise we're going to do something more international uh, soon. All right. Back. Just sorry. It just occurred to me as I was, uh, as, as we were about to dive into deep American history. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I will say for just like off that note real quick, like uh, I did look, you know, for this piece and for other pieces at how other countries handle community feedback for infrastructure projects, because like we're not the only country that does this. And uh, the comparisons are actually really interesting because they get to different cultural ideas of when the public should be able to weigh in on these types of large meaningful or even small but meaningful infrastructure projects and like at what point they get to have a say and then at what point public officials are basically like nope this is what we're doing we're moving on you know we're going to do it and how people and and like people's attitudes towards that in different countries which is like really fascinating but i don't know if we have time to get into it on this show well who has i mean fuck it who has a better system or more which which system do you think is better out there that you researched and saw? Well, I don't know if like the like I don't know if the overall system is better, but I did talk when I uh, when I was doing some recent stories on public transit costs, like building public transit in the U.S. Um, I talked to a researcher who did a very in depth study of how Italy handles environmental reviews, which is a major mechanism for this public feedback process, 
And in Italy, there's kind of like an interesting dynamic where people broadly do not trust the federal government because it has a long history of deep corruption. But they have a lot more trust in their municipal government, which is elected on a kind of like citywide basis and not so much like you don't vote for like a local council member who represents like a specific district. You elect like the entire council city in an at-large election and in in many cases. And um, what that does is it basically empowers the city to be like, we have a mandate from the voters to move forward on certain projects. And so the environmental review process is separate in Italy from the public feedback or comment process. And that is generally done before the environmental review is, is done. So they don't waste time doing environmental reviews for projects that like aren't going to get built or the community is going to hate. So like basically ordinary people just say like, yeah, I'm, I'm generally in favor of this transit improvement of this transit line or of like more bike lanes or something like that. And then when the elected government moves forward with those projects, sure, there are people who like maybe don't like it or don't or, you know, are opposed to it. But there are avenues to um, actually fight it in a like structured, legally sanctioned way is very narrow. And I think that's like a much better process. And it's basically a similar one to what I lay out at the end of the feedback piece, which is like community engagement is for coming up with these broad plans or should be for coming up with these broad plans that like set goals essentially for a mun- for a, for a municipal region and then it shouldn't be up to ordinary people to like vote yay or nay or show up to a council meeting to say yes or no on individual projects that's just insane in in America no one trusts any of their politicians local or federal generally right everyone's very <laughs> suspicious of any kind of change yeah, and also like I think the district nature of how we elect representatives has like a very us versus them mentality. You're not like maybe there are some cities in in the country that do it this way, but I'm not aware of any where like you basically elect, you know, you hold a vote for at large representatives and then you have a council who aren't tied to like representing a specific part of the city. Um that dynamic, which is very common in the U.S., where you like elect a city council member who represents your district, and then all the city council members get together and vote on like a policy, and then this is re- replicated at the state level, is like really, really harmful for building any kind of regional plan or system because it basically gives each district representative a de facto veto vote based on whether it's good for their specific constituency or like whether, or just even if their constituency believes it's good for them or not, even if they're wrong, you know? And it's just like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of layers to that. And honestly, like we didn't even, I didn't even really get into this in the community feedback story, but like, this is a huge, huge problem with the way we plan for cities because it encourages parochialism rather than coming up with a plan that's good for the city as a whole kind of turns government into sports to a yeah, team government sport. is sports politics is sports for right. sure which is like i mean that's a whole different conversation but it's just a problem <laughs> in general in our country kind of this the the sport in entertainmentization of government but let's push away from that before we go mad um so 
I want to get into the history of this because a lot of this stuff is stuff that I didn't know I learned from your piece. Um, there's a reason we do community feedback in this country this way. Um, and some of it is very good reasons, right? Can we talk about what it was like before and what happened to people in those systems during, during that era? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is like really important to understand as we think of how to improve the system, because we definitely don't want to make the same mistakes that we previously made. Um, usually when I bring up this topic uh, or when someone asks about like the history of it, someone inevitably invokes like the New England town hall meeting ethos and assumes that like this is something that the U.S. has been doing since before it was even the U.S., And like, obviously, it's true that New England towns had, you know, town halls where everybody showed up. But like, broadly speaking, when it comes to building like infrastructure of any size or scale in this country, the idea that ordinary people who live nearby that infrastructure or even who will be affected by the construction of that infrastructure should have a say in whether it's built or not beforehand is an extremely new idea, you know, historically speaking. It really dates to the post-war era. Um, And the reason why it dates to that point is, uh, and again, it comes back to this trust in government concept. So, as hard as it may be, as hard as it may be to believe this, in the post-war era, basically from like the end of World War II through the 1960s, Americans broadly believed that the U.S. government, that big corporations, and that rich people were ushering in a kind of technological and technocracy utopia where we would use computers, fancy models all these new statistical analysis techniques and chemical production using synthetic materials and just like all of these scientific and, 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 and knowledge advances to create essentially a modern utopia. This was not like a crank idea. This was very much discussed in the open by politicians, by rich people, by pub, by news organizations, by publications um, as like, more or less fact like this, that this was where we were headed and in the urban planning and urban development world this manifested in the realm of building highways you know the highway like obviously the the eisenhower uh highway era began in the in the early to mid 1950s And it was very much part of this idea of, you know, that we're going to that like this motor based future is going to be this technocratic ideal. Um, We're going to figure out we're going to build the most perfect highways that'll go directly into the cities that'll make, you know, commuting from the suburbs in your perfect little single family home into your office like a breeze. And. You know, we're going to do it while demolishing the slums that have, uh, you know, stained our cities for generations or, you know, whatever rhetoric they use. Um, but Aaron, don't this, people live in those slums? Yeah, well, this this concept of urban renewal um, was 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 widely accepted like the idea that it is good to demolish these slums to build new things sometimes that was highways sometimes that was like arts and entertainment complexes like lincoln center in new york for example sometimes it was uh just housing complexes that were supposed to be better housing for the people who already lived there but almost never worked out that way 
Um, it was all types of things. And it was generally accepted that it was good that these extremely smart, talented, uh, you know, highly trained, you know, white men, they were, they were like basically all white men, um, were designing new cities for us essentially. And these were not, you know, humble projects. These were like, you know, tear down entire neighborhoods, thousands of buildings in some cases, and build something entirely new that like the world had basically never seen before in its stead. It was a huge experiment, but not really acknowledged as an experiment at the time. And yes, to the pe- people lived there. And, um, you know, there's, there's the famous, uh, I think it was James Baldwin comparison that urban renewal was really Negro renewal, remo- removal, excuse me, um, that was, you know, true in many cases, certainly. Um, it was also true that many white ethnic, you know, working class neighborhoods were destroyed as well. Um, and, you know, it was it was it varied depending on the city around the country, um, especially in the South Highway Construction was often used as a pretext for destroying uh, established black neighborhoods out of like uh, directly racist goals. And then there are other cases where the highways were built through black neighborhoods in other cities, not for overtly racist um, ends, but essentially because the planners deemed that those neighborhoods offered the path of least resistance, which is, of course, just another way of saying structural racism, because they identified the neighborhood that had the least political clout that, you know, whose people the politicians would not listen to, um, that type of thing. So it's just another form of racism that's, you know, manifesting at this time. And, you know, did the, the, the question obviously relative, relevant to this story is, did any of these planners talk to the people who live in these places first? And the answer is like, basically no. Um, in some cases they did. And in some cases, like there was one urban player named Ed Logue who was probably the most progressive and he worked in various Northeastern cities in the sixties and seventies. And he was probably the most progressive in terms of trying to get like actual community buy-in for his projects. But what ended up happening was when he didn't get that buy-in, they just kind of went ahead anyways after years of delay. Um, and the, But that was also the exception. Um, at the time, it was much more common for urban planners to simply hold these uh, publicity meetings, essentially, for the people in the neighborhood where they'd tell them what they were planning on doing, tell them about how great it would be for the neighborhood, and then tell them, oh, by the way, you have to move because we're going to you know, knock down all your houses. Um, and so that was much more common at the time. And what ended, what essentially happened was there was a huge backlash to this for obvious reasons that was, um, you know, it was tied into a lot of what was going on in the country at the time in the 60s and 70s. I mean, just to there was a huge loss of trust in public expertise, in politicians, in experts at the time, because frankly, they were fucking up all the time. I mean, like this is the era of Vietnam. This is the era of the Pentagon Papers. This is the era of Watergate. And you also have the urban crisis where like cities are falling apart. Crime rates are soaring. People are leaving for the suburbs. And to a lot of Americans, all these issues were kind of tied together into the general idea that the people running shit have no idea what they're doing. Um, and I, and I'm sympathetic to that. Like there was, you know, there was ample evidence for that for sure. Um, on various fronts. And I mean, like all this urban renewal stuff, it didn't work, you know, like the, the record on these projects is extremely mixed, um, to the, I would say even 
bad. Like, you know, they have a bad record. It didn't work um, in renew. Certainly it didn't achieve the goal of like stopping white flight of keep making American cities uh, fiscally healthy, attractive to live in. Any of the goals that they tried to, you know, that they stated these projects were for didn't work. So, you know, there were, the backlash was real and deserved. And that's where a lot of this local control stuff comes from. A lot of this community feedback process comes from because people were basically saying these these people in charge have no idea what they're doing. We knew this stuff was bad and they didn't listen to us. So the way forward is to give us more control over what happens to our block, to our neighborhood, to our city so they can't fuck it up again. All right, we're going to pause there for a break, cyber listeners. We'll be right back on with Aaron Gordon after this. If you're watching the live stream, which you can at youtube.com forward slash motherboard or at twitch.tv forward slash motherboard, there's no, or motherboard TV, whatever, you get it. There's no break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. All right, welcome back, cyber listeners and viewers. We are back on with Aaron Gordon. We are talking about the history of community feedback or uh, why it was so funny that Patton Oswald talked about Marvel and comic book stuff in uh, uh, Parks and Rec for 20 minutes and it was a beautiful scene. Um, okay. So that's kind of the history and how we got here. And it's also basically the explanation of uh, the meta plot of every noir story set in Los Angeles from 1940 to 1960. Um, yeah, that's right. So have you ever been to one of these things? Have you ever sat down and done oh, yeah. community feedback? Oh, yeah. So I've been to a few as an ordinary citizen for my neighborhood, which was a terrible experience. But I've been to many more um, as a reporter because I used to cover New York City transportation. And so I for about three years. So I've been to and uh, during those three years, there were a number of meetings for. Uh, I don't know if you remember back in 2018, they said they were going to have to shut down one of the busiest trans, one of the bu- busiest subway lines in North America for Sandy related repairs for 18 months. I'm not, a, and there was like this, not a New Yorker just happy to get on the subway every time I'm there. That yeah, still, so still just like seems a, like magic to me. This was a huge deal because this line moves like hundreds of thousands of people a day. And they had to figure out how to get people across the East River between Brooklyn and Manhattan, between Williamsburg and Manhattan, like without this subway line. And so there were like dozens of community meetings for that story, which was like one of the biggest was the biggest transportation story when I was on the beat. And then why do community meetings for something like that? That seems like it's such a big problem. Like what can what can the community possibly contribute to that conversation? Uh, They could say that they're. Children will be run over by all the buses. They can say that the MTA is lying about how many people ride the L train. 
they can say that the bike lane they were planning to put along 13th Street would ruin the neighborhood, result in the deaths of numerous old people who would get run over by these crazy cyclists, and that it would destroy the fabric of the West Village community. They could say that um, the MTA was planning on murdering people, that uh, the mitigation plan they had for dust coming out of the tunnel was actually ethnic cleansing. Um, I mean, I could like I could go on here, but it was like it, it was shit like that over and over again. That's what they could say. Is there anybody ever that actually has a good point? So this is a good question. I asked basically I asked everyone I interviewed for this story and I interviewed historians who study this thing. I interviewed transit planners. I interviewed housing advocates. I interviewed, uh, you know, uh, planners for state agent, state and local agencies. And I would, I asked all of them, like, you know, have you ever sat through one of these meetings and heard someone say something that was like, Hey, that's a good idea. That's a good point. You know, we should definitely take that into account. And I heard answers that varied from no, to one to two a meeting someone says something that's a decent enough point but like it's stuff we've already thought of to you know one to two people a meeting will say something that like we generally genuinely hadn't thought of before and sometimes we even do it you know it's like so the you know the and, and and but they would all say something to the effect of like but you know to hold one of these meetings is like hundreds of hours of staff time because you need maybe between six and 12 staffers there. You have to plan for it in advance. You have to, you know, log all the feedback you get. Then you have to go through it all. And then like, you know, it's just like, it's a time consuming process. And sometimes and so you it's need like security now too, or police officers on top of everything. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, is that worth the one to two decent comments you get? Or are there other ways to get that comments? And of course the answer is yes, of course there are other ways to get those comments. Um, so yeah, usually they don't, they don't get good ideas from it. And, and to be clear, like this is often something that is required by law to do, right? Yeah. So they're, they're like kind of two different or three different, I should say, ways to think about how it's required by law. So especially for housing projects, it's often required by law because local jurisdictions, whether it's a town, a city, a county, whatever, they'll have zoning rules. And zoning rules date back to the early 20th century, but they've become increasingly complicated over time. And it really wasn't until the post-war era that they became so complicated that um, you basically couldn't build anything uh, unless it fits squarely into the zoning for that specific area, or you got what's called a permit or a variance. Um, and you'd think from the term permit or variance that these would be relatively rare instances, you know, a variance. Oh, well, maybe you need a variance like every once in a while, but mostly you'd, that's not the case. You need a variance to build most things like for example, in, in cities, at least, for example, um, in, Cambridge, Massachusetts, there was an abandoned warehouse that someone wanted to turn into housing. They weren't going to do anything to the structure exterior. They weren't going to add floors or anything. They were just going to basically gut renovate it and turn it into four condos. Um, they needed a variance to do that. Uh, if you, and, which, and, and the point is, if you need a variance, if you need a permit, the local zoning or planning board holds a community feedback hearing. 
and they do this um, by notifying all of the property owners within, you know, and it varies by jurisdiction, but they're legally required to notify all the property owners within a certain distance of that project. And so essentially what these notifications turn into is like letters in the mail that ask people like, do you have a problem with this? Right. Because if you don't have a problem with it, you're going to throw away this notification and not even look at it. But if you do have a problem with it, you're going to show up to the meeting. And obviously, that's going to make projects seem much more controversial than they are. For example, this 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 warehouse in Cambridge, which is a real thing that happened. Um, it's the lead anecdote in a book called Neighborhood Defenders that was written by three Boston University researchers. Uh, six people showed up to that zoning meeting or that planning meeting they all opposed it the project was they basically those six people entered into a negotiation with the developers essentially over what the project would look like and ultimately their concerns were of course about parking and so the I'm sorry what yeah it was over parking and traffic because the four units were going to have um, one space per unit. So four per, and, and like this is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, walking distance from two major universities, from public transit, from ample bike lanes, and they were going to have one parking u- uh, space per unit. And the, these six people who showed up to this planning meeting said that wasn't enough. And so through negotiations with the, like six months of negotiations with the project developers, the developers agreed to remove one unit from the plan and at, and basically replace that with an extra parking space per unit. So it would be six spaces for three units instead of four for four. And this was the compromise. It took six months because six people showed up to the, to the meeting to basically air this complaint about parking for a building they wouldn't even live in. Um, and that's that's basically how community feedback happens on housing projects when they need variances. And look, this is a small example. One unit who cares about one unit It's crazy. But like it's one unit. But this happens citywide. For example, 40 percent of the buildings in Manhattan, if you wanted to do anything to them, would need to go through the land use and zoning and variance process, which would trigger community feedback because they were built before existing codes. And so by nature of having to do anything to these buildings, they would need to get variances from the existing code, right? Because they're not going to comply with the code on their own. In Chicago, a researcher from Urban Institute named Yona Freemark looked at the 50 largest housing construction projects in that city and how many of them needed to go through this community feedback process in order to get built. And the answer was 86%. So this is like this process is basically an endemic to wanting to build anything in this city. And now let's contrast that to if you bought a couple hundred acres in an unincorporated area 50 miles outside of Austin. Okay, just for example. <laughs> wait, wait, um, why why Austin, Aaron? I don't know. It's just the first city that came to mind. I just uh-huh. thought of like a Texas city with high housing costs. Um, it's pretty much any state except for New York, uh, Massachusetts, Washington State, and California, because those have their own environmental review laws that require environmental review for basically any project, um, which does trigger community feedback for these processes, which is a problem of its own. We don't have to get into all that. But let's go back to the Texas example. Let's say you built a couple, you bought a couple hundred 
uh, like acres of farmland or even wilderness or something, and you want to build like 300 single family homes in this area, odds are this is an unincorporated area with no zoning rules, and therefore you can build whatever the hell you want on it. And obviously you're going to build single family homes because you will make more money doing that than if you build, uh, you know, like apartment complexes. And also it's kind of silly to build apartment complexes in the middle of nowhere if you bought in an unincorporated area. So what this does is it strongly incentivizes developers to go for the path of least resistance, which is to buy unincorporated land they could build on with basically no resistance. To create rather more than suburbs. To buy Yes, which and this is a really underappreciated mechanism of sprawl over the last 50 years, is that developers are doing the completely sensible thing based on their own incentives, which is like, shit, I don't want to build, like, you know, go through this headache of a process to, like, convince a bunch of neighbors that they, you know, to, to build an apartment building near them. I'm just going to buy, like, 200 cheap acres out in the middle of nowhere, you know, pay for a road to get to the nearest highway and just raking the money from it and not have to ask anybody's permission for it. Emory Lee 2014. I think you may not have an answer to this, but I think I might, uh, in Texas, they allow it without any oversight, right? Um, Aaron, do you know the answer to that by chance? Allow, allow what? Like the building of these, uh, like the building of these kind of suburbs in this unincorporated land. Yeah, as long as it's in an unincorporated area, there are like, a f- I think there are a few state laws they have to follow, but they're like very minimal. It's basically like a free for all. Um, and that's true of a lot of um, essentially red states that don't have strong environmental review laws. Um, the other, I should just briefly mention that's one aspect of how community feedback works on, you know, housing stuff and the laws that require it. Um, transit projects come from the other direction. They come from federal regulations because they typically receive federal funding. Um, And this applies not just to new subway or transit lines or bus rapid transit lines, but it also applies to fare raises. It applies to bus route redesigns and even bus stop removals in some cases if they receive a certain amount of their funding from the federal government. And in this case, the federal government has a very specific type of meeting you have to hold in very specific ways before you can do these changes. Now, of course, there's nothing in the law about like, if a certain number of people don't want it, then you can't do it or anything like that. It's just literally you have to hold the meetings and then you can do whatever you want. I want to circle back to Texas real quick. I'm from Texas. Um, so the, the kind of lack of oversight that, that Aaron's talking about here you end up getting really weird places in Texas. Like this is what allowed Warren Jeffs, a uh, polygamous Mormon cult leader to like overnight buy portions of uh, unincorporated land in Texas and kind of set up his own city. Uh, and he's not the only person that does that. And some people with a lot of money sometimes come into Texas and build these. And there's a lot of land and it's very flat, especially like the Northern part of the state. Um, People will come in and just find a nice place off the highway and spend a couple billion dollars and kind of make these very bizarre planned cities that kind of have their own thing going on. Uh, You could cruise on down the highway and not ever really know that there's a whole community of uh, very strange people with very strange beliefs living a very different life than the rest of the state uh, in there. Um, Just a weird peculiarity of living in Texas. 
Um, I need to know more about these weird these weird places. We'll have to talk about that. Yeah, later. we'll we'll have to talk about this. Uh, like, yeah, it's super interesting. Uh, we'll we'll talk about this offline. Maybe we'll do another episode about it. There's a lot of really strange planned cities in Texas, um, and it's and it's a direct result of this kind of thing. Um, all right, how do we how do we unfuck this? Um, God, I mean. <laughs> And so, and so the piece the piece ends with basically some suggestions on how to make this better, but I don't want to pretend that like it's an unfucking of it. You know what I mean? Like these are not solutions; they're ways to make the problem smaller. And uh, I really like one thing that uh, Yona Freemark, the Urban Institute researcher, told me, which is like he obviously agreed that like a lot about this process is bad and should, and should take place differently. But he also pushed back very heavily on the idea that like there shouldn't be a mechanism for community feedback at all. Um, And he said actually that like he almost enjoys some aspects of it. Like he enjoys the debate of what our city should look like and that people have different ideas and that, they essentially compete on these ideas in various ways. Um, I think, I think there's a lot of insight there. I think a lot of people who are upset with the current process are upset with it because the outcomes don't reflect the policies that they want. Right. So a lot of people who are most upset about the community feedback model are people who want to build more housing, more bike lanes, more transit lines, quicker, faster, and in a more sustainable way. And like, those are goals I agree with, um, for sure. The thing is, a lot of times the criticism of this process gets boiled down to how do we make it so we can build these things faster? And that's different than how do we improve the process of community feedback? Because, um, Obviously, the way to be to build these things faster would be to eliminate community feedback for those types of projects. Um, But I'm not sure that would accomplish a goal that we would all be happy with in the long run, because, um, like I said, these processes at least theoretically exist for a good reason. So I was very focused on solutions that have us doing community feedback in a more useful way rather than figuring out how to accomplish the ends of building these kind of like specific projects or goals for cities. And there are kind of like two, I would say specific things that I, that I highlight in the article. One is um, the structure of these meetings should change. So like if you've ever been to these meetings, odds are it occurred in like a lectern style auditor you know in an auditorium with like a lectern or a microphone set up and people took turns speaking at the microphone to public officials seated at like a table in front of it or something this is like the very common structure of these meetings and one uh activist slash community board member uh i spoke to compared it to professional wrestling which i think is right it's very theatrical it's designed to get people to kind of speechify in the most like obnoxious way, you know, with all the eyes on them, they ham everything up. Um, And that's not helpful for anybody. So I think what is becoming more popular and what I think is, is a better model, but not without its pitfalls is what's called the workshop model. And that's like where you, where you segment people out into small groups. They have like someone from the agency kind of guiding the discussion, but 
it's made very clear to all the participants that like this particular person is not anyone deciding anything, right? They're just like gathering input. Um, and so that brings down the temperature of these things a lot. Like I've personally participated in some workshop style meetings and they're much chiller. And I think like that helps at least one aspect of the problem. The other aspect that, you know, the structure of the meeting doesn't help is how often we hold these meetings and for all these different things. And the only way to address that is to create zoning and citywide plans or even regional plans that actually reflect the reality on the ground, right? Because right now the problem is basically to build anything, you need a variance or a permit, which then triggers these community feedback meetings. What if instead we concentrated all these community feedback hearings essentially into one upfront community feedback process to come up with a new plan for the city or the region that then has a zoning code that is much more in line with the reality on the ground and you don't have to and you don't need permits or variances for each specific thing. Now there are cities that are doing something like this. For example, Minneapolis spent years holding public meetings for what's called Minneapolis 2040, I think it's called. And it's like basically an update to the city's zoning map. And it's a it's a good idea. Um, I think they executed it pretty well. There were obviously lots of contentious meetings with lots of shouting and people with different aims and goals. But this structure um, has two main benefits to it. One is obviously you have a zoning code that matches the reality on the ground. And so you don't need as many of these kind of individual feedback processes. Second, and this is, I think, the most important part, because the benefits are to people who uh, aren't homeowners nearby, right? Like if you're a renter in Minneapolis, it is easier for you to want to participate in a meeting about a 20 year plan that upzones the entire city because there's a very reasonable argument that this plan would lower rents over time and low and, and maybe even lower housing costs over time, like for, for purchasing a house. So you as a, as a renter have incentive to take part in this process. Um, that incentive doesn't exist if like some, if like to show up for a single meeting about a single apartment building, right? Because like you probably won't live in that building. That single building probably won't affect rents in the area much, if at all. So like, what's it to you? Um, and so what these long-term plan feedback processes do is they even out the imbalance between the naysayers and the yaysayers, the yimbies and the nimbies, if you will. Um, and I think that's a really important goal as well, because it doesn't make the proposals that seem contentious as a one-off at, or seem, seem uh, unpopular as a one-off. Um, it, it matches kind of the reality of how these projects actually are perceived by the public when they do like more extensive polling or there are like citywide votes and stuff. Um, but the, the, the coda to the Minneapolis 2040 plan is it passed and now it's, um, you know, locked up in lawsuit, environmental lawsuits. <laughs> so like there, there are problems there too, obviously. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't propose any of this as like, we just do these couple of things and everything is solved. But you know, if if that thing gets through the lawsuits, which, you know, might take a year or two, they'll then have an 18 year plan, which is in effect and could maybe make things better. And then they don't have to fight about like, 
you know, does does Billy's duplex get to become a fourplex, you know, at like some community board hearing or whatever. Um, all right. I think that about does it. But I do have a question from the chat I want to follow up on. Um, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning with the Italy example. I just want to know if you have some others off the top of your head. Um, this is again from Emery Lee. I'm curious to know how the practices are in other countries like Japan, China, some places like Europe and Germany. I think we kind of talked about Italy. I'm going to assume it's similar in the rest of Europe. Um, what I'm, I am curious about like Southeast Asia and also they ask, what are the best practices in a place like Dubai? Uh, I'm going to say probably in Dubai, it's top down and they do what they want. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I gen like, I write a lot about, you know, how other countries build transit lines, for example, I've done like numerous stories on that. And there are a ton of lessons to learn from the rest of the world on that stuff because it's very, um, you know, like other countries know how to build trains. Like, you know, like that's, that's a thing. And that's not really going to change country by country much, no matter how much us officials like to pretend otherwise. This process, however, is one of the few examples where I think there are limits to how much you can learn from how other countries do it because it's so cultural. Um, what people expect from their local governments or from their, you know, like even regional governments uh, in terms of participation, feedback, how much they listen to them, um, who matters and who doesn't. Like all of that stuff is so deeply cultural um, that I I'm not actually sure how much the U.S. has to learn from, like, for example, how Japan or China or Indonesia or whoever does it. Um that's not to say we should be dismissive of how those places do it. And like, to be honest, I don't know a ton about like the land use processes for building a new apartment complex in Tokyo. Like that's, I, I honestly, I, I couldn't tell you what that is. Um, I bet it's so, I bet it's fascinating and like draconian and I, I kind of want to, I'm going to look that up now. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot about, uh, the way other countries do things that is deeply important to the U S and we have a lot to learn from it. But like from what I understand about Japanese culture, the regard for authority and expertise and government is very different than it is in the U S. And I, so I just don't know how much we have to learn from them um, in, in this specific instance. Um, I will say that historically I know that many European countries had the same uh, issue with urban planning in the post-war era, not actually asking people who were subject to the big, massive plans they were doing, like whether they actually wanted it or not. Um, and there a lot of mistakes were made in that regard. I actually don't know, and this is something I really want to do more research on, um, how other countries dealt with that backlash. Because... One big difference, though, between like those countries and the U.S. is those countries like, you know, when you talk about Germany, the U.K., Japan, even China to a large extent, France, Italy, they had a lot of rebuilding to do after World War Two. So there was a lot. So there were starting from a very different place than the U.S. was in the post-war era, where we essentially had no rebuilding to do. Um, and I think that changed the dynamic a lot. Um, and I don't know how that's carried forward through time, um, you know, between generations, but I know that's a very different, a very big difference in how ordinary people were thinking about urban planning in the post-war era in various countries versus in the U.S. 
Um, so just the landscape was extremely different. Um, and also a lot of those places didn't, just a quick code, a lot of those places had very different racial politics. Racial politics were huge in the U.S. in how these conversations were going in the post-war era in most cities. Um, you know, the U.K. had like very, very few non-white people, for example, in the post-war era, like the immigration from uh, Jamaica and Trinidad and India and Pakistan um, was just beginning in the 1950s. So, and you know, I think the story was pretty similar in the rest of Europe. So that, that, that had a huge effect on how things unfolded too. With that specific aspect, things may be, again, it may be more of an interesting idea to look at like Japan because there are more similar ish racial politics, especially with like Korean immigrants. But again, that's like beyond the remit of this show, but everyone should look into that because it's, it's fascinating. Um, yeah. And if anyone has any insight on this stuff, I'd love to hear it, you know, doing research on different countries. Um, is it incredibly time consuming? The easiest way to do it is just to hear from people who like know something about that country. Um, so yeah, if you if you have any insight or expertise there, I'd love to hear it um, because the, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is a lot to learn from these places and how they do it. Um, and that would be fascinating to know as well. Aaron Gordon, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through your new piece. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, if you like us, if you like the show, please follow us on Twitch and YouTube. We're at youtube.com forward slash motherboard and twitch.tv forward slash motherboard TV. You will be notified when we go live. You get to watch an ad free version of the stream and you get to uh, interact with us a little bit more on Twitch, YouTube, a little hard to manage the chat. It's a little, it's a little wild over there. So if you want to talk to us, come over to Twitch. Uh, we will be back again next week with another, uh, you know, conversation about what's going on on the internet and in our lives. And I will see you then. Goodbye, everybody. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.